Welcome to Galaxy Brains, the weekly podcast from Galaxy Digital Research. As always, I am your host, Alex Thorne, head of firm-wide research at Galaxy Digital, and I am joined by a great group of folks from Galaxy today, including from the research team, Saul Kadir, Christine Kim, and Charles Yu. How are you guys doing today? Doing well. Good to be here. Yeah, likewise. Awesome. And we've got three really interesting topics today to cover. We are going to talk about a seven-block reorg on Ethereum's beacon chain. We'll find out what that is, what it means, is it important. Um, we're going to talk about optimism, the layer two on Ethereum, blacklisting 17,000 addresses from receiving their forthcoming airdrop. Uh, and then we're going to discuss uh, with, uh, among other people, Michael Marcantonio, a lawyer here at Galaxy Digital who follows the space closely. Seth Green, uh, the actor, uh, had his board ape stolen in a phishing attack while he was simultaneously developing a television show focused on this. And we're going to have an interesting conversation uh, with Michael and the folks on the podcast about commercial use rights and intellectual property in the NFT space. Um, and so we'll introduce Michael uh, uh, during that segment. Uh, but first, uh, as usual, we're going to go to our friend Bimnet Abibi uh, from Galaxy Digital Trading uh, to talk about uh, markets and uh, what he's seeing out there. Uh, Bimnet, how's it going? Good. Thanks for having me on, Alex. Yeah. So, I mean, we had Fed Minutes uh, released today from a meeting a few weeks ago. Um, I guess maybe let's start there. Tell me uh, what was in them or, or, you know, is it impactful? Is there any, any new information? Um, there's not too much new information that, that, that we got from, from the minutes. You know, they, they stayed committed to sort of ensuring price stability. It seems like they're on pace to hike 50 in the June FOMC meeting and in the July FOMC meeting and then sort of be more data dependent thereafter. Um, the market reactions to the minutes were, were pretty mild. Um, we didn't really see too much movements. Um, you know, stocks rallied a bit and crypto rallied a bit. Um, but other than that, there didn't seem to be too much um, that surprised the market. Um, but I would say that there's been a bunch of meaningful developments in the markets since the, the last um, FOMC meeting. Um, just to give folks some context, uh, these minutes covered the FOMC meeting from May 3rd to, to May 4th. Uh, so we've had a, a solid sort of three weeks uh, of, of data and, and market price action to, to sort of help inform our view. Um, and what I would say is, is the biggest sort of change that you've seen in the market um, since you know the, the that meeting um, would probably be the the shift to sort of growth concerns from from inflation concerns you know one sort of measure uh, of, of growth expectations um, and versus you know sort of inflation expectations is sort of us fixed income so just thinking about where us yields were last week you know they're about 25 basis points higher um, you know, to, to, to at the, you know, last Wednesday. So we've gone from 3% to about 275 um, over the past week. And then basically about three weeks ago, I, I think we were hovering around 320 in yield. So you've had a, a 45 basis point move lower in, in fixed income. Um, and you've also had a pretty meaningful move lower um, in, in U.S. stocks, you know, last week we we actually set new lows um, in, in the trend in stocks. Um, and if you look at anecdotal things like, you know, Google searches for, for recession or, or slowdown, um, they've started to pick up. Um, and, I, you know, personally, I, I do think that, you know, 
some of the shift to, to growth concerns is, is, is somewhat warranted and happy to dive deeper into that. Yeah, I mean, I think that's an interesting topic to maybe move to because, you know, I've looked at, you know, we're watching housing markets. And if you're out here, you know, during COVID, there was that huge boom and, and wanting to try to move out of cities, right? You're locked down. Why should you be in a small apartment? And so that caused a huge, you know, housing boom. And then, you know, with rates increasing, mortgages are getting expensive. So maybe that is that coming off a little bit? Um, yeah. So, I mean, you know, there's a lot to touch on there, but but yes, um, you know, mortgage rates are part of the equation. What you've seen happen is you've seen mortgage rates, you know, for the average 30-year fixed um, mortgage go from, you know, call it high 2% to, to high 5%. Um, and so you've seen housing affordability um, go down just as a function of, of the cost of, of financing a home. Um, in addition to that, what we've seen lately is, you know, a pickup in, in homes for, for sale. Um, so, you know, what we call that is just, you know, housing inventory has, has, has started to, to rise. Um, and also, you know, the, the pace of, of buying activity has slowed. And so you are seeing signs of a, of a slowdown in housing. And given how fast and how high we, we moved in, in the housing market, it does not shock me that, you know, you might get an equal and opposite sort of movement to, to the downside, um, particularly given sort of the, the pretty meaningful wealth effects um, that the that are happening right now, right? You know, bonds have sold off a lot this year. Crypto has sold off a lot this year. Stocks have sold off a lot this year. So the compounded wealth effect of that, in addition to the prices of homes going up, um, will certainly lead to, to less demand. And, and that's what you're, you're starting to see. And I would tell folks that it's really important to pay attention to, to the housing market um, because of, you know, a number of reasons. But the, the primary reason is that, you know, it's a huge source of household wealth, uh, particularly for, um, you know, lower income, you know, percentiles. Um, in addition, um, it, it's a large component of inflation measures, right? Uh, rent, owner's equivalent rent is, is the largest portion of, of CPI. And so, you know, the Fed is purposely um, trying to get housing lower because it is a large part of, you know, how people spend their money. Um, and so, you know, I think it's pretty clear that the, the Fed is seeing sort of what they wanted to, to happen. Now, the question is, you know, is that going to, you know, lead to sort of a much harder landing than the Fed expected? Is that does that mean the Fed is going to have to um, sort of start easing monetary policy um, sooner than expected? Um, and that's that's really the interesting question. And the, what the market is telling you, you know, via you know what the fixed income markets have done recently, um, via sort of what forward interest rate curves have, have done recently, um, is that you know it's a, it's a higher probability that the Fed starts to shift away from you know inflation concerns to to sort of growth and employment concerns. It's really fascinating. Um, I can't. I, I it's just going to be a wild story if we. I keep talking about that whipsaw monetary policy. If we go within the same year to, you know, rapid tightening to then easing again, but I, I understand it's a it's a really complicated situation. Um, okay, just lastly, Bim on on you know on cryptos on digital assets. Like, what have we seen over the last couple you know last week since we last talked? Today is Wednesday, May twenty fifth, as we're recording this. Yeah, so we've seen sort of Bitcoin hover around this this thirty k level. Um, and we've seen um, alts, um, you know, trade worse on, on a relative basis. Um, and I think that's 
just a function of what happens when, when markets are, are, are stressed, right? What you see is a flight to quality, right? People go to where they think they will get the best quality in terms of storing value, uh, which means, you know, the less volatile things, which means things that institutions are involved in. Um, and so you've had a flight to quality in crypto, and that's why Bitcoin has, has outperformed. Um, and just anecdotally at, at, at Galaxy as well is, you know, you have a flight to quality in terms of the counterparties that you deal with, you know, not just the, the, the assets that, that, that you invest in. Um, and so, you know, I, I think that's broadly indicative of, of where the market is now and where the market is likely to be for, for the foreseeable future, given sort of the uncertainty and the, and the macro backdrop. And, you know, the, I, th- I think the biggest thing for me is that the, like th- there's nowhere to hide as, as an investor, whether it's stocks, bonds, um, crypto, et cetera. Um, and so, you know, I, I'm, I'm not shocked by, by this flight to quality, but, you know, there's also sort of cash as well. And, and generally speaking, you know, this is a, a reasonable environment to just be on the sidelines as well. Having no trade on is, is, is a trade. Um, and so I, I think that's what you're seeing in, in, in some of these alts where you know, people don't want to be in, in things that they're less certain of, that have more volatility, that have less liquidity. Um, and so I think the trend of Bitcoin outperformance can continue over the coming weeks. Awesome. Bimnet, thank you so much, as always, for those uh, really cogent thoughts. And, um, you know, we'll be we'll keep following the markets um, no matter what develops. Uh, but we continue to be in a very interesting and, um, and serious time for basically all assets. So um, really appreciate your insights. OK, next, let's talk with Christine. You're going to explain this to me because I've been in Washington all week uh, and I'll talk about that towards the end of the podcast. But I, I just caught a glimpse of this, that there was a seven block reorg on the Ethereum beacon chain. And, um, you know, I'd love you if you could you know, just quickly give us a, a primer on what a reorg is and then we'll dive into this. Is it important? I mean, what, what exactly happened? What do we think happened? Yeah, definitely. So. Just very simply, a reorg is when we've seen a block get um, processed by the validators or miners. Depends on if you're on a proof of stake or a proof of work network. But when you see a block get processed by the stakeholders of the network that's responsible for processing and finalized blocks, um, when you see that block get replaced with another block that wasn't originally Um, the block that had progressed or been appended to the canonical chain. Um, I think just to explain that a little bit further, um, it's easier to to understand this in context of what a fork choice rule is um, and how you know what the canonical chain of a public blockchain is. In proof of work systems, it's usually the longest chain. So whatever version of the blockchain that has the highest number of blocks is considered the canonical chain because in order to append a new block to a proof of work blockchain, it requires a significant amount of computational work or energy. So the longest chain means that that chain has had the most amount of computational power appended onto onto the network. Yeah, this is called Nakamoto consensus. Right. And proof of and proof of stake, that same logic doesn't apply. It's for Ethereum in particular, the beacon chain whose proof of stake consensus algorithm is called Gasper. The canonical chain is whichever chain is the heaviest. And I'll kind of unpack a little bit what I mean by heaviest. Um, there are validators that have staked 
a certain amount of ETH on the on the network, 32 ETH for 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 Gasper right now. Um, however, of course, that could change if if developers, you know decide to change any aspect of the protocol, but for now it's 32 ETH. Um, the canonical chain is the chain that has had the most amount of votes for the blocks. So um, in order to get a block appended to the proof of stake blockchain, it doesn't require a ton of computational energy to append that block, but it does require at least two thirds of votes by validators. And so when we talk about the heaviest chain, we're talking about the chain where the largest amount of validators have affirmed, yes, this is the history of the chain. So when it comes to deciding um, what the heaviest chain is, the algorithm that validators run automatically choose the canonical chain that has had the most votes. Um, but of an extremely famous paper last year, which was created in October 2021, called Three Attacks on Proof of Stake Ethereum, illustrated the potential for an attack to happen on the network and for blocks to basically be resubmitted and for chain history to be reorganized if a if the validator who's chosen to propose a block um, holds off a little bit, um, basically collects attestations from other validators on the network and then proposes their block a little bit later. So that was a potential attack vector that could create quite a lot of disruption on the network. Um, and so in light of that, developers had created a new change to the specifications for Ethereum's proof of stake um, consensus algorithm, Gasper, called proposer boosting. And that basically creates more of a weight, not just on the attestations that validators are saying, affirming that this is the correct chain history, but also um, giving some weight to the, to the validator who's chosen to propose a block, um, giving some weight if, that if that, the validator who proposes that block um, proposes it in a timely manner. So without waiting, um, they, there's a certain amount of, of rewards, a certain amount of, of heavier uh, fork choice rule modeling that goes to the, to the chain that has um, the validator who's proposed a block quickly, who's proposed a block on time. Um, and a lot of the conversation around how this seven block reorg happened today, according to core developers, is that some nodes had implemented that upgrade that addition to the fork choice rule called proposer boosting and other nodes in the network other client teams hadn't quite done that yet which is why at this point of the network when there was a decision that had to be made about wh what is the most canonical chain or what is the chain that has the heaviest weight there was a split there was a difference and until the validators of the network could figure it out you know you had um, different variations of chain history continue to progress until this this large um, reorganization happened um and so I, in, in my personal opinion, I did take a look back on, on some of the updates to proposer boosting and some of the updates to the, the chain um, fork choice rule. And it is true that very recently core developers were tweaking and optimizing proposer boosting um, according to the GitHub history. Just this Friday, there was a new commit that was created um, for proposer boosting. And that is something that developers had written on the logs would be something ready for the raw 
upcoming Robston hard fork. Um, so if you've been following merge testing, you know that that's kind of a big milestone that devs are looking ahead to. Um, and I think it is plausible that that there was this kind of a, a disagreement among clients in terms of which clients are ready and have upgraded all of their specs to be um, up to the latest version of proposer boosting and which haven't. Um, I think that says a lot though about how many clients and how many nodes are still in varying stages of readiness for the merge. The devs that I've spoken to um, don't view this particular incident today as something that um, will impact merge timing. However, again, investigations are still ongoing. Um, it's not for it's not set in stone, I guess, that the real culprit of the seven block reorg was proposer was differences in the proposer boosting implementation, although it does seem likely. Um, so overall, I think this incident is um, something that so far seems chalked up to, to differences in the implementation of Gasper, but not necessarily a, a flaw in the Gasper uh, fork choice rule itself. That's helpful, Christine. That was a bunch of great information on, on it. And I guess, um, you know, a couple quick questions. One, um, it sounds like we don't really know for sure yet what caused the fork, um, but it doesn't seem like it was an attack, right? Because when we think about you know, block reorgs, um, you know, that's, that's, you know, in proof of work and it's similar, but a little different in proof of stake, but in, in proof of work, right, you hear about the 51% attack and typically that attack is a minor amasses, a large amount of hash power, mines a, a chain in secret because they possess more than uh, the, they possess the, actually the majority of the available hash rate, they ultimately will mine more quickly. And then they release that new chain all at once back to the network. And because they have more, hash power, they actually build a longer chain. And so then nodes all say, wait a sec, we have these two opposing chains and one of them has more work and it switches all, all of a sudden a big, it's called a big reorg happens where everybody moves now to, because of Nakamoto consensus to that longer chain. And what you can do in the interim as this malicious miner is also um, double spend some coins, right? We can basically deposit coins on an exchange during this period. Um, and then with and then sell them and withdraw the cash and then release the fork. And on my forked secretly mined version, I haven't deposited the coins on the exchange. Is there any like indication that that's what this was and uh, at all on uh, on the beacon chain? And, and recall, just the beacon chain is this proof of stake sort of. You know, it's not a test net; it's live, but it's not you know Ethereum main net, um, which is still proof of work and where all you know DeFi and whatever else is happening on Ethereum lives, right? But is there any indication that this is like an attack? I don't think it's likely because of how limited the amount of, there is essentially no transaction activity, transfers aren't enabled, there is no DAP activity, there is no DeFi living on top of the of the Ethereum of, of Ethereum's beacon chain. However, there are validators earning rewards for proposing blocks and for progressing the beacon chain. So there is a small amount of financial incentive, I think, um, and definitely some validators that were negatively impacted financially from this seven block reorg. I don't think that that financial incentive is enough to, to pull something like this off on the network. It could have been maybe a test run to see if something like this could work in, 
in the more testing phase of the beacon chain before the fork choice rule becomes um, a lot more lucrative to attack after the merge. Um, but even in that case, I think because not all of the nodes had updated to the latest proposer boosting um, fork choice rule, after the merge, I think once all clients are ready, ready for the merge right now, again, as I said, there's different degrees of readiness for the merge. I mean, presumably by the time of the merge, all clients will have upgraded to the latest proposer boosting. I think the possibility of being able to execute something like this intentionally goes down um, quite significantly. Um, and, and so I think there does need to be a bit more investigation to confirm that proposer, the differences in proposer boosting was the, indeed the culprit for the seven block reorg attack. And in that case, even if this was, was done purposefully, post-merge, it shouldn't be an issue. Awesome. And, and just very quickly, I know it's early. Um, this, for, this reorg happened on, today on Wednesday, May 25th, the day we're recording this. Um, but just in early looks, is there any sort of uh, um, risk or indication that this could delay the merge? No, from I mean, uh, uh, truly, this is um, up to the core developers that are do that are progressing through testing, uh, progressing through executing the merge on on various Ethereum test nets. And from the developers that I've spoken to about this incident, they haven't said that this is this was an incident um, that would delay the merge or impact merge timing. Awesome, Christine. Thank you so much. Um, really awesome overview. Um, let's let's keep it moving here, and uh, we're going to talk about optimism, the Ethereum Layer Two network. Um, we we said on episode seven of Galaxy Brain, which I believe was April 29th, uh, we described how Optimism was planning to airdrop a token to, to users of the platform. Uh, but an interesting story: they're now blacklisting 17,000 addresses uh, from receiving that forthcoming airdrop, which hasn't yet occurred. Um, apparently. These addresses belong to folks who were, you know, trying to farm that airdrop, right? Inorganic activity, Sybil attacking optimism to try to generate more addresses to receive that airdrop. Uh, Charles, you, you're here. Um, you've been following Layer 2 Networks for a long time. Wrote a great report last summer uh, in search of uh, scaling a guide to Layer 2 for where you, where you wrote extensively about optimism. You continue to cover it. Uh, fill in the blanks or correct me on my my uh, characterization and let's then tell us why it's why it's interesting. Yeah, so just to provide a little bit of background, um, about a month ago, Optimism had announced that it was forming a unique governance structure called the Optimism Collective, and that it'd be launching a token, the OP token. Um, and originally when they shared this news, uh, they said that 265,000 addresses were eligible to, to claim um, OP tokens in the first airdrop, um, and they'd be getting 5% of the initial Genesis supply. Um, they also have uh, another 14% of the token supply that's allocated towards future airdrops. Um, but when they made this announcement, they had also applied certain filtering criteria targeting civil farmers, um, snapshot bots, or uh, you know certain like known addresses of exchanges or, or exploiters. Um, and then they also asked for the community to help identify and report suspicious accounts that may have slipped past uh, these initial um, filterings. So early this week, they shared an update saying that they removed an, an additional 17,000 civil addresses um, that were eligible for the initial airdrop um, and recovered about 14 million OP tokens, which would then be split among the remaining eligible um, addresses. 
Now with this update, they stated that they chosen not to publicize the additional filters used, um, saying, and I quote, teaching Sybils how to become undetectable is not in anyone's best interest. So given that they're planning on to do additional rounds of airdrops in the future, um, this to me like uh, feels like the proper way to handle an airdrop. But Christine, you seem to have some criticisms of how this was handled. Uh, what's the problem you see here? Wow, really putting me on the spot here, Chuck. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I definitely took up issue with the whole filtering of, of eligible addresses for the airdrop because it clearly it clearly is a very centralized process in order to attack, um, in order to prevent the civil attack problem that I feel like in the space of decentralization and creating permissionless systems, relying on such centralized means to protect your network against um, civil attack is just such a blatant way. It's just that, like a blatant like white flag being thrown around this issue of of civil attack and and resistance against um, identifying bots and malicious actors. And I, I definitely hear the argument that that the token itself has not been distributed yet. And perhaps the OP team would not be able to have such a such power to be able to blacklist addresses after the token is dropped. But I think even the process itself and the way of thinking about airdrops and doing this retroactively is kind of a a negative, it sets a negative precedence, I feel like, for other, you know, token projects, for other uh, L2 networks thinking about how they should go ahead and do their do their token token launches. I hear what you're saying. I think uh, it kind of follows the sort of libertarian libertarian belief um, among many blockchain participants that um, you know individual accounts like should not be targeted or um, should be permitted to to use certain blockchains, for example. But I think. The problem, or like, I guess one example that comes to mind with, with your argument is last month we saw the Juno blockchain um, doing an airdrop and they found that afterwards one whale had uh, sort of gamed the airdrop and accumulated, um, you know, more tokens than, than they should have been allotted. So after this airdrop happened, um, the community had actually voted through governance to revoke most of his tokens. Um, leaving him with what they dubbed uh, a smaller portion, um, a fair a fair amount of, of Juno tokens. So in this case, it was actually left up to two of these centralized like governance process to, to revoke, you know, a certain address or a certain individual who had accumulated a larger share than, than he should have been allotted in the first place. But I think that this sort of sets like a pretty bad example, um, almost like you're rewriting like the, the original blockchain and provoking like tokens that that went to someone in what could have been deemed like a, a fair distribution. So what do you think? That's fair. I think that's a really good example of how airdrops go wrong. And to be fair, I think that the optimism team must have known that their airdrop was very, you know, vulnerable to simple attack. And from my perspective, I do think that if it's clear the way that you're planning on distributing a token is unfair and is going to be attacked through Sybils, 
And the only way that you can think to protect such a process is through blacklisting 17,000 addresses through a filter that you're not able to publicly share and that no one can verify is really extremely effective. Like maybe there's even more symbols out there that this filter couldn't have handled. I think that's a little bit of poor foresight by the OP team and this recognition that even if we do an airdrop that is vulnerable in this way, and then we retroactively apply these filters, that the entire community is going to be fine with it and that everyone is going to be extremely supportive of the token still. Um, I think it's, it, it's still quite concerning to me how like accepted this is and how this practice hasn't really raised very many alarms or red flags by, by individuals who, who want to keep seeing like the permissionless decentralized um, ethos of the OP community grow. Yeah, that makes plenty of sense. But I do think one thing to keep in mind here is um, the from formation of uh, the Optimism Collective. Um, they're sort of moving to this two-house governance structure, which is uh, relatively unique among um, blockchains, where one house sort of follows the, the more traditional form of governance where voting power is based on the amount of tokens that are being held. But they also have what they call the citizen's house, which uh, sort of allocates one vote per wallet or per address where, where every single address kind of holds a, a non-transferable um, NFT to represent their voting power or a soul-bound NFT. And so in these cases, civil attacks um, or people that, that game the airdrops and, and spin up, uh, say, hundreds of, of addresses to, to receive this sort of voting power, I think it's like it puts optimism um, much more at risk of, of these sort of attacks than, than traditional forms of, of governance that just rely on a the amount of tokens that are being held. Really interesting. I'm hearing, I love the, the comparison to Juno. It sounds like optimism um, to avoid something like that having to happen. Um, and and then, you know, Christine, I mean, I, I also agree with you that, you know, this the, maybe I liked what you said, a lack, perhaps a lack of foresight. Um, there's no doubt that, you know, a, a team releasing a token and tinkering with the token, at least again, prior to release is, is I guess, probably better than after release, um, but it does raise questions, I think, about centralization that are worth asking. Um, and then Chuck, I, I just want to throw this out here on the soulbound NFTs. My understanding, these are NFTs that can never be transferred, right? So once they're delivered to a, an address, um, Vitalik wrote about this just recently. We, we're not going to cover it in depth, but is that right? Yeah, that's right. It's very interesting. Uh, some uses there, I'm sure, would be interesting that people are going to think up. And then just for the audience, I mean, we said, talked about civil attacking a lot, just for some quick background on what that is, right? That's when a small number of people um, counterfeit fake identities, right? To some compromise or, um, or comprise, you know, disproportionate share of a system, right? And so, you know, there are ways that networks deal with civil attacks, want to say by adding fees, right? We've talked about this a lot, right? If it costs money, interact with uh, a blockchain, for example, then you'll get less, right, uh, less civil attack vulnerability because to spin up like, you know, tens or hundreds or thousands of fake addresses and interact with an app, say to farm an airdrop, um, would, would have costs associated with it, right? And of course, if the expected outcome versus the cost is higher, that then maybe you would still do it. But another good example, I think, is if you think about bots on Twitter, um, they get spun up like you know, all the time, right? Elon Musk is ask, asking about bots. 
Um, we've all seen them. There was stuff about like where there Russian influence campaigns using bots and whoever knows, right? And there's tons of people, people in the Bitcoin or, or crypto spaces. Like you'll see, you know, reply bots that try to scam you out of coins. Like, you know, newsflash, never click on any of these links or join any weird telegram training groups or any of that stuff. Um, but part of the reason that they, they can do that and cast such a wide net is that there's no cost to post on Twitter. And, you know, one idea that has been proposed, I've heard it there, aside from, you know, per tweet cost, even if it was small, um, you can use the Lightning Network for this, perhaps, but also just a dollar, pay a dollar in order just to be able to tweet. <laughs> and that, that cost um, would, would reduce civil attacks. So um, those two terms just wanted to explain for the audience, but let's move on. Fascinating uh, discussion and debate. Uh, Christine and Charles really appreciate it. Um, okay, our third story, very interesting, near and dear to my heart, because uh, I've been talking uh, uh, with folks um, both on this on this podcast, uh, both Saul and Michael, who were joining us to talk about this for a while. Um, and we also talked about this uh, when we discussed in an early episode of Galaxy Brains, the acquisition of CryptoPunks and MeBits IP uh, uh, by Yuga Labs. Um, from Larva Labs, um, and it's and it's really sort of coming to the forefront in a really interesting way. So I'm just going to quickly say this, and then Saul, I'd love it if you could uh, jump in and, and you know finish the the sort of news item here. But that Seth Green, the actor, um, been around a long time, played um, Doctor Evil, sort of forgotten son in Austin Powers, a very funny role. He owns a board ape, or owned a board ape. That's part of the story, and um, was going to build or is in the process of developing a television show. I guess centered around the premise that, you know, what if your bartender was a board ape? Anyway, that board ape was stolen. Now there are questions about, you know, can he even use that uh, likeness and concept? But Saul, would you would you fill in some of the blanks here for me? And then and then let's kick off a discussion with Michael. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll start filling out those blanks by also stating Seth Green's known as voicing Chris on Family Guy, uh, creator of Robot yep. Chicken, and involved in many, many other TV shows and movies. Um, so he was recently the victim of a phishing attack. And just to get everybody on the same page here, phishing attacks have been around forever. Uh, usually they pertain to nefarious sites or actors masquerading as legitimate sites or actors in an attempt to lure victims into compromising something of value. And traditionally, this could be banking, logging credentials, identity, proprietary company data, things like that in the more Web2 era. Web3 presents this new paradigm where identity and access to a product or service is leveraged through a wallet. And that wallet can also contain valuable assets in and of itself. And so from a phishing attacker's perspective, instead of stealing some, something like your banking login, they could actually just steal your tokens or NFTs in that wallet straight up. And so this has become a major trend that's polluted the NFT space recently. And in the case of Seth Green, what he was trying to do was mint a gutter cat clone NFT. Uh, but the problem was the minting site that he thought was the actual minting site was actually a fraudulent phishing site. And so when he was trying to uh, presumably spam click to mint the NFT, he probably was signing a bunch of transactions in his wallet that he didn't read fully because he was in a rush to get the mint. You know, it makes a lot of sense. And he ended up invoking a transfer function that transferred all of his uh, NFTs. So in this case, he lost one board ape two mutants, one doodle in the attack, uh, to the nefarious actor, those four NFTs ended up being worth $300,000 um, at the time. But the real issue is that, and as Alex alluded to, Seth Green was in the process of making a show completely centered on 
his board ape, which is numbered 8398. And the premise of the show, as Alex said, what if your neighborhood bartender was board ape yacht club 8398? It was unveiled um, at VCon recently. And so now there's this really interesting issue. This NFT clearly was stolen by a fraudulent actor. There's already a lot of work that was put into making a show that was starring this ape that was once owned by Seth Green. And the licensing rules of Yuga Labs, who owns the Board Ape Yacht Club collection, states that the owner of the NFT has commercial rights associated with that NFT. So how does this, it starts to invoke a bunch of questions now that we'll probably get into with Michael as to what happens next. Yeah, Michael, Mark Antonio, uh, I introduced at the top of the show on the Galaxy Digital Legal team has been looking at this issue for a while. I'm really happy to have you here, Michael. Um, first, how are you doing? And, and yeah, and welcome. Um, but yeah, to help us dig into some of these issues. First, I guess, does, does Seth Green still own this NFT? So I think if you look at the commentary on BuzzFeed and many other publications, everyone's getting this wrong. So I want to clear up the record here. And I think uh, provide your listeners with some uh, very interesting food for thought. So to get you set back, the issue is a couple fold. First, what do you own when you purchase an NFT? Second, what did Seth Green own when he purchased and possessed Ape 3893, also known as Fred Simeon? Third, what did Seth Green lose when his NFT was stolen? And then finally, what should he do going forward? Those are some of the topics I think I'd like to cover. But to dive right in, most people think that when you purchase an NFT, you're purchasing a JPEG of an owl, a pixelated punk, an ape, but you aren't. And this is an understandable confusion because trading JPEGs or selling JPEGs is how the news reports it. Indeed, when Beeple sold every day's the first 5,000 days, the headline was on the New York Times, quote, JPEG files sells for 69 million as NFT mania gathers pace. It's not true. He, no, the purchaser of Beeple's Everydays did not buy a JPEG. What they bought was, an, well, an NFT, a non-fungible token. When on Ethereum, a token that conforms to the ERC-721 standard. And the ERC-721 standard is what makes a token non-fungible and what distinguishes it from, say, Ether or an ERC-20 token. Fungible tokens have certain characteristics, total supply, balance of function, transfer, transfer from function, the approved function allowance that make it fungible. ERC-721s, by contrast, they have also have certain characteristics, token ID, contract ID, and something very important called token URI. But when you buy an NFT, you're buying a bundle of code. So you might ask, what does this have to do with the JPEG? You know, when I go to OpenSea, I see a JPEG. I bought an image of an ape. Don't I own that ape? And the answer is no. What you own is the token. You, no one can take that token away from you. But what that token does is it points to the image. It does not own the image, does not control the image. It points to the image, typically saved on an IPFS server, which is not on Ethereum. It is not a blockchain. And it points to that image through the token URI. The token URI, if you look at it, it is just simply an address that is a JSON file that is stored on the web. And that JSON file contains certain metadata, 
one of which is a to another URL that points to an IPFS server, and that is where the image is. So you might ask, well, what do what is the relationship between the NFT and the image? And the answer is, when you buy the NFT, the owner of the image, also known as the copyright owner, that's very important, digital content, to the extent that it is owned, it is only owned by virtue of someone owning the copyright. If you don't have the copyright to digital content, you don't own the digital content. And so by owning the digital, uh, by, by the, the copyright owner will then confer to you a limited license by virtue of owning the NFT to display that NFT, uh, that image, or in the case of Yuga Labs, to commercialize it. So Michael, this is a great, great background. Really appreciate this. And, and I guess, so when we talk, uh, that that's part of the tech stacks too around NFTs, which has its own, I think, issues, um, which we've talked and written about as well. Um, but let's get into the commercial use that Yuga Labs specifically allows, um, perhaps in contrast to those allowed by others. Um, and also like, you know, is, is that what Yuga bought? They, they bought from, from Larva Labs intellectual property rights to the, that collection, right? Which is the actual ownership. That's correct, Alex. Every single punk owner, when Yuga bought CryptoPunks, should have asked themselves, wait, I thought I owned the copyright of punks. Now Yuga owns it. Well, in fact, punk owners never own the copyright of their punks. They own the token. It was Larva Labs that owned the copyright, and then they sold the copyright through what's called an IP assignment agreement to Yuga Labs, who now owns the copyright completely. So what do now punk owners or Board Ape Yacht Club owners or any NFT owners, what rights do they have in the digital image that is displayed? And the answer is, at base, they have a limited display right. And with respect to Board Ape Yacht Club and now let's say Moonbirds and Azuki, and now it's basically the standard actually, they will have what's called commercial rights. And this is problematic because if you look at the Board Ape Yacht Club license, and the license is what gives you the commercial rights, it's very unclear what those commercial rights are. It doesn't specify them. And there is no legal doctrine that a judge can enforce called commercial rights through a license. And the reason is this, think about what a commercial right is supposed to be what, and how people use it. When you have a commercial right in your board ape, you can make money off of it. You can put it as the mascot for Bored and Hungry, the new restaurant, or you can display it in Seth Green's new TV show, or can you? Well, those rights are pursue it to a license. That is what's called a contract of adhesion. What does that mean? It means it's a one-way contract. Yuga puts it on their website, you take it or leave it. And by virtue of buying the NFT, you have agreed under the law to conform and comply with those terms. And so a commercial license is very unclear what it contains. And so with Seth Green, you got to ask yourself, how confident was he really? And maybe he was, but maybe he shouldn't have been that he had any rights in to commercialize the, the ape at all. Because if you think about it, if you want to put the show on Netflix, what is Netflix? The first thing Netflix is going to do, they're going to say, 
are we violating copyright if we make a show about this? And if the answer is maybe, they're going to go to Yuga Labs directly and execute an agreement, a real formal legal agreement uh, to display that that copyrighted image. Michael, that's um, right. <laughs> that. That's significantly more tenuous, I think, than most people uh, expect. Um, Saul, do you have anything you want to add in here as we're talking about it? Uh, just just a, a thought or two here, because um, there is like that sort of legal analysis that you went into, Michael. But then there's also just the fact that Yuga Labs has gone out and said publicly, um, at least at the time when they bought punks, uh, that the whole reason they did it was so that people can start commercializing and making use of the IP um, through that license you talked about for their punks. And so I'd just be, I'd be surprised if they would end up becoming sort of hesitant or, or try to pull back uh, in any way. One thing to point out though, is let's say Yuga Labs is acquired or sells the IP to Bored Apes, uh, say to anyone, right? You know, a big media company or something. That media company could universally change that commercial license, correct? The same way that Yuga Labs changed the punks license. Correct. So this is the most important thing that I'm going to say on this podcast today. The difference between a license and a copyright. If you own the copyright, you own it 100%. You are the master of that image. If you have a license, and especially the licenses with respect to NFTs, those licenses can be changed, revoked, modified, for no reason or any reason at all times. And so Bored and Hungry, the restaurant that is displaying the uh, Bored Ape that Bored and Hungry owns, they, if Disney were to buy Yuga Labs and revoke that license, there would be no, absolutely no claim that Bored uh, and Hungry could make to continue to display that image. And that is something that I think is problematic for two reasons. The first is, it kind of undermines the commercial rights that you have. I mean, you can't really have a business predicated on a image that you have via commercial rights if it can be taken away at any time. The second thing, and more importantly, is what does it say about the Web3 that we are creating? So if Web3 stands for anything at all, it stands for the new internet, the internet of the future will be owned by its users. But the licenses that we see with NFTs today are very web too. They are almost indistinguishable from a YouTube license for a YouTube creator or a Facebook license or an Apple license when you rent a movie on Apple. So these are problems that I don't think many people know about right now, but should, because I don't think the NFT community is going to, would support these licenses going forward if they understood that how limited and tenuous their rights are. Yeah, it's a big deal, clearly. Um, and, and again, the delta between, I think, what people think and what is true is, is quite large. Okay, lastly, Michael, um, you know, what, is, what do you think Seth Green does from here, uh, just in general? Like, is there recourse? Like, can he, is it on Yuga Labs to take recourse? Like, what are his options? So it's a great question, Alex. And it's a fascinating question because if you look at the BuzzFeed article that came out, or many other articles, it says, Seth Green lost his NFT, it was stolen. So therefore he no longer has commercial rights. But the law is pretty clear about this. A thief who steals property from someone cannot transfer good title to anyone else and does not own that property. If I steal the deed to your house, Alex, and I sell it 
to Christine. Christine doesn't know I stole, I stole it. The law will not say that Christine now owns your house. It will give your house back, your deed back to you and your house back to you. And the reason is because that there's an ancient principle in the law, which basically says that you cannot transfer title if you steal something. And so there's an argument to be made that Seth Green still owns the NFT and therefore still can avail himself to the commercial rights, no matter how tenuous, still avail himself to those commercial rights. And so, the, but this is where it gets very interesting because let's say Seth Green takes my advice and he goes out there and he continues to make his TV show. And let's say further that Yuga Labs, because they're getting a lot of criticism from their community, because he doesn't own the NFT anymore. He can't you know, say he owns the commercial rights still. If Yuga Labs were to sue Seth Green, even though the law says that he still owns the NFT and therefore the commercial rights, Yuga Labs would win that lawsuit because, again, the license is completely within the discretion of Yuga Labs. And if Yuga Labs were to revoke that license, there's nothing Seth Green could do. Really, really tricky situation here, um, and and really happy to have you, Michael, uh, to to give us background and 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 explain this issue. That again, I keep saying is, and you've said is not well known by the market. Um, and and you know, hopefully, if if you think NFTs are going to be big and important, um, then they particularly these types of sort of artistic NFTs. Um, hopefully, we get somewhere where we can you know, have, have clearer ownership and stuff. And, and, and let's remember trusted third parties are security holes. And in this case, it seems you collapse truly is a third party with total uh, control. And it re- basically requires trust that they honor these licenses today. Yeah, absolutely. Alex. I mean, just the final thing I'd say is every NFT project today could, if they wanted to transfer copyright to each holder, they don't because why would they, unless they're forced to, But I believe and I hope that over time, there will at least be a market for NFTs that do transfer copyright. It doesn't have to be every single NFT. Fidenza probably doesn't want to transfer copyright, and he shouldn't. But for those uh, projects like Board Ape Yacht Club that are selling commercial rights, because copyright is a superior form of commercial rights, then they should eventually move to selling actually the nft with commercial uh, with copyright so thank you alex thank you sal uh, yeah thank you everyone i really appreciate being on yeah michael this is great um love to have you back uh, we'll be following this story uh going forward uh for sure um okay before we get to our quick takes uh i'll just uh give the audience a little flavor of what i've been up to this week i'm in washington dc um, and i was here attending a conference um, and also meeting with policymakers and, and interested stakeholders uh, interested in Bitcoin and crypto and digital assets and blockchain technology. Um, a lot of interesting stuff here. We'll, we'll you know, put out more on this uh, as we go forward, what I'm seeing, but sort of a quick overview. Um, there's a large range of experience level among uh, uh, legislators and policymakers in this space, but there is a significant amount of interest um, and some of that interest we're seeing, there are literally dozens of bills in, in, in the two houses uh, of the U.S. Congress, um, either in a state of having been introduced or being worked on. Uh, lots and lots of uh, discussion and work around stable coins, of course. We know that's been a major, major topic of interest for policymakers and regulators and, and others um, 
We've covered that obviously extensively. We wrote about the PWG working group paper. We've written about the Fed's uh, research paper and 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 on a variety of things. You know that's ongoing. Uh, it's not clear whether it's accelerating. It was already pretty pretty big, um, but that's one major topic. Also, things on market structure, token taxonomy, discussions on tax, and and uh, maybe we'll see you know a de minimis exemption, um, which you know Coin Center has been talking about for a long time to help promote the use of Bitcoin uh, and, and other cryptocurrencies for payments. Um, and also some some work being done on a comprehensive framework for the uh, digital assets industry. You know, I don't have details on this now, but um, something probably will be uh, introduced over the next month or two um, that will spark a lot of conversation, I think, uh, with a really quite comprehensive framework for regulating uh, the digital asset industry in the United States. And recall also we have the first of the executive ordered reports from federal agencies coming out in early June, I think June 7th. Um, that one sort of a broad sort of uh, how the U.S. can work with international partners on issues related to digital assets. Um, and then there's stuff, another wave of reports in July and then a huge pile of reports in September and October. And then, of course, we have a midterm election in the United States in November. Um, so a lot, lot, lot going on in the policy space. Uh, we'll be covering it uh, very closely and we'll bring more updates um, and viewpoints um, to our audience, both on this podcast and in Galaxy Digital, uh, our, our, our Galaxy Digital Research's content that we put out, our reports and our newsletter and our various other channels. So lots of interesting stuff and we'll keep you updated there. So let's dive right into the quick hits. Every week we talk about just a couple quick uh, news items and uh, get people on the call to give us a take. So here's one. Uh, Uniswap passed uh, 1 trillion in cumulative total trading volume. Milestone achieved. <laughs> Go Uniswap. <laughs> uh, that's a lot of volume. Um, okay. Oh, wow. This one is, uh, this is something. Ex-WeWork CEO and founder Adam Newman raised 70 million uh, in a fundraising round for a new blockchain project called Flow Carbon. Does this have something to do with uh, carbon credits? It does, yeah. I mean, my quick take is don't sleep on Adam. Seems a little dicey, right? I mean, in the scheme of things, but sounds ambitious. Um, <laughs> and okay, Coinbase entered the Fortune 500 list of the biggest U.S. companies. Is this Did they grow big um, or did others grow small? I believe, allegedly, they were the first crypto company to, to do so, to enter that list. Wow, big news. And, and the Central African Republic uh, is launching a Bitcoin investment platform. What, what is this? Who knows what this is? Nobody knows what it is. I, I, it, well, we know that they, they've been looking at uh, a Bitcoin in general. And I think they were also, they have a legal tender situation there that we talked about a couple of weeks ago, right? And Binance has completed the Optimism network integration and opened layer two ETH deposits. So we were talking about Optimism. I'll offer something. I love to see uh, exchanges in general adding sort of more tech savvy support, such as things for layer twos. I want to see way more at Bitcoin's Lightning Network, but um, anybody else have a take on this? Yeah, just a note here. If you do use that to, to on-ramp the optimism, uh, you would have been excluded from the airdrop. Right. So Binance would get your airdrop. Is that right? They would be excluded. Oh, they're, they're excluded as right. part of the filters. Centralization. Um, <laughs> <laughs> wow. Um, all right, that's all we have for today. Big, big thanks to Bimnet of BB from Galaxy Digital Trading, 
to Michael, Mark Antonio from Galaxy Digital Legal, and to Christine, Kim, Charles Yu, and Saul Kadir from Galaxy Digital Research. Um, we'll be back next week. This was Galaxy Brains. I'm your host, Alex Thorne. And please, please, please rate, review, and subscribe if you like this content. But we will be back next week. And thank you. Thanks for listening to Galaxy Brains, a weekly podcast from Galaxy Digital Research. If you enjoyed this show, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to learn more about Galaxy Digital Research and what we work on, check us out on Twitter at GLXY Research and read our reports at galaxydigital.io research. Tune in next week for another episode. We'll see you next time.